You know, quoting Homer Simpson is a pretty strange way to open a sermon, I admit. But the book of Judges, the book of the Bible that we are beginning uh, to go through uh, today, and we'll spend several weeks in it, is arguably the strangest book in all of Scripture. One minister said, this book doesn't so much need a catchy illustration at the beginning as much as it needs a parental warning. There's a lot of graphic stuff in Judges. Probably wouldn't want your kids to see it if someone made a movie about it. It has sex and violence, rape and massacre, brutality and deceit. It's, it's very definitely R-rated. You know, maybe this is why so few people are familiar with the book of Judges. You know, although you've probably heard, from, heard some stories from this book, um, you know, Gideon and uh, Samson, uh, they are both uh, the, probably the most familiar characters in, in the book of, of, of Judges. Uh, so, you know, actually, there, there are a lot of reasons why we shouldn't even study Judges. Uh, to begin with, it's, not only is, is it a strange book, it, it's a difficult book. And uh, it's so difficult that many commentary sets don't even include the book of Judges. John Calvin, for instance, wrote a set of commentaries, but... He skipped Judges. It was just too hard. He also skipped Revelation, by the way. And you wouldn't find the book of Judges represented too much in the revised common lectionary either. Uh, the lectionary is a, a book that many mainline churches use as a guide for scripture reading uh, through the course of uh, uh, actually about three years worth of, of scripture readings. And you know how many references to the book of Judges you'll find in the revised uh, common lectionary? Uh, actually, uh, there are seven verses, but they all come from chapter four. And then there are the songs. Another day, Jared came into my office, and as we typically do during the course of the week. We'll talk about the text and uh, I'll talk about some of the things that I plan to talk about and by the time Sunday comes around, none of this stuff we talked about Thursday I'm going to be talking about today. Um, but anyway, we have these discussions so that we can kind of coordinate uh, the, the scriptures and the message that comes from the scriptures and have uh, songs and hymns and spiritual songs that will reinforce uh, those ideas that are coming forth from Scripture. And uh, you know how many references to the book of Judges you'll find in our hymnal? Zero. You know how many references you'll find to the book of Judges in uh, contemporary Christian music? Zero. Zip, zilch, nada. Not to be found. You know... Uh, Judges is a, a book that we maybe should just back away from. I mean, that's been our tendency. Uh, again, if Judges were a movie, uh, you wouldn't find it on the Hallmark Channel. You probably have to go to HBO or some other uh, 
channel like that, because uh, after all, uh, you're, you're not going to get the warm fuzzies by watching Judges uh, if it were a movie. It's because Judges is graphic and gruesome. It is visceral and violent. It is a book of destruction and death. It is bleak and full of brokenness. It's chaos. But it is precisely for these reasons that I find the book of Judges to be one of the most oddly hopeful books in the Bible. I'm not sure that any other book in the Bible gives us the big, big view of our desperate need and of our sin the way that Judges does. But in addition to giving us a big view of our desperate need and and a big view of our sin, it's also a book that gives us the, the, the big, big view of the grace of God. I don't know of any other book in the Bible that so poignantly reminds us of who we are. You know, God wanted his people to know who they were. They were not like the Canaanites. They were not supposed to be like the Canaanites. God did not want them to become like the Canaanites. The Canaanites were idol worshipers. God didn't want that to happen. And so he wanted his people to displace the Canaanites in the land that he had given to them. So, uh, you know, God still wants his people to know who they are. So we're the people of God. Just like the people of Israel, we're the people of God in the book of Judges. We, we share that in common. So a lot of the things that God wants to teach his people in the book of Judges are the very same things he wants to teach us. You know, we live in a time of chaos now too, don't we? The fact that you're wearing a mask over your face is an indication that this is not life as normal. Anytime you pick up the newspaper, if you still read a newspaper or uh, TV news, or maybe you get it online like a lot of people do, uh, you're going to find something else that contributes to chaos. So we need order in the midst of all the chaos that's going on around us and how does that order come it comes by realizing who we are we are the people of God now before we jump into the text I want to give you a little bit of historical background I'm pretty sure that um, you don't read judges as uh, devotional material <laughs> uh, so uh, maybe a little historical background will help us grasp what's being taught in it a little easier I um, want to go back uh, to the time of the Exodus when the people of Israel um, had, had moved there during the famine in uh, the, their homeland of uh, Israel or Canaan as it was also known. And they come there because Joseph um, has become the prime minister and there is food there. And so Jacob brings his family down to Egypt. And they lived there for quite some time. 
Uh, but then uh, Pharaoh arises who did not know Joseph, and he is afraid of the Hebrew people that they may overpower the Egyptians. So he decides to make slaves of them. And the people of Israel remain in bondage in Egypt for some 400 years. And then the time comes for their deliverance, also known as the Exodus. And they get, uh, after the 10 plagues, they come to the edge of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is fast approaching and God parts the waters of the Red Sea and they march across that on dry ground. That would have been really something to see. And then they, they come to the, uh, the, the Sinai Desert and uh, not too much... Uh, Later, they come to the edge of the promised land and uh, spies are sent out. And Joshua's one of the spies. Caleb is one of the spies. They say, we can take this land. And the other says, oh, no, we can't do that. There are giants in the land. We, we are like grasshoppers in their sight. And so because they were afraid, they did not go in. And so God said, okay, you don't want to go in? Uh, you can just stay out here in the desert for some 40 years. And so uh, that's where they stayed until that generation died out. And uh, after that generation died out, uh, Joshua ascends to the place of prominence. He is the leader because Moses has died. And uh, again, they send some spies in, and some spies go in, into Jericho, and there there is a, a, a woman um, who is named, we say Rahab, I think in Hebrew it's pronounced Rahav, uh, but I can't do the guttural sound in Hebrew, and because I'm an American and a Southern American at that, I'll just call her Rahab. <laughs> but nonetheless, she hides the spies. And uh, so we're seeing history kind of re repeat itself again. And, and then the angel of the Lord comes and tells Joshua. Now, anytime you see in Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, this is a reference to a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ. So Christ is in the book of Joshua. He is in the book of Judges. Uh, sometimes we see him unfold uh, kind of mysteriously and, and sometimes he appears in the, the form of an, of an angel. But nonetheless he guarantees victory if they will go in and take this land and uh, so uh, they decide to do that and so for the most part uh, Israel under Joshua's leadership goes forth and they drive out inhabitants of Canaan but not totally. They leave some who were there. Because after all, you know, war can get wearisome and tiresome. And they're ready just to get back to life as normal. We understand that, don't we? But because they did not drive the inhabitants out, uh, then they brought more trouble upon themselves. And, and this is where we are now. So uh, having given you that a bit of historical background, uh, I want to take you to, uh, if you want to turn with me in your pew Bible to page 200, uh, this is uh, where we're going to begin. I want to read several verses in chapter 1 and a few in chapter 2. So I'll give you a second to get to text there, page 200, if you would like to follow with me. 
After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him. And then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at, at Bezek. They found Adonabezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonabezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonabezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Then skip down to verse 19. The Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Then in verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. In verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. It's beginning to sound like a broken record. Now let's skip over to chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Now, the angel of the Lord, here again, this is a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ, went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? Now, I say, I will not draw them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum. Bochum means weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, I want to go back to verse 7 for just a minute and use it to reconnect this dangling thought that I intended to put in your mind a minute ago, but I forgot. So here's the dangling thought that I want to uh, attach to your mind uh, just for uh, a, a moment. And, and that thought is this. Why would God command his people to wipe out the Canaanites? That doesn't sound like a God of love, does it? Go wipe out these people? Now, it's important for us to understand that God is using the people of Israel as an instrument of judgment on the people of Canaan. This is not justification for anybody who picks up the book of Judges and sees where uh, the Lord says, go wipe these people out. That means, oh, well, God's commanded us to go wipe these people out. Uh, so there you go. That's not what it's saying. 
Uh, this is a specific command to a specific people uh, in a specific situation. Um, I, I told you this is a hard book, okay? Um, but, you know, people in this current age, we like to think of God as, why is Homer still looking at me here? I'm sorry. This is going to be really hard for you to concentrate. All right. How do we think of God in our present culture? You ask most people and they say, when I think of God, I'd like to think of God as a, a God of love. I never want to think of God as a God of wrath. What's been one of the big buzzwords in the news the past several weeks, the past few months? You know, justice. There is a demand for justice. How can you have justice without having judgment? How can there be judgment apart from wrath? You know, the Canaanites were wicked people. They sacrificed their children to their gods. And you know how they did that? They burned them alive. It was, and, and they did a lot of other terrible, disgusting, despicable things. Now, it's not like they just did this once or twice and God said, all right, I've had it with you people. That's enough. You know that God actually encouraged the Canaanites to repent. He called upon them to turn away from worshiping these false gods. You know how much time he gave them? The same amount of time he kept his own people in the land of Egypt in slavery so that he could show mercy to the Canaanites. Some 400 years. And when they wouldn't repent, even when their lives depended upon it, they still wouldn't repent. That's stubborn. Now, I want to take us to uh, chapter 1, verse 7. And uh, here we're told uh, the Israelites chased Adonibazek. This is the first reference. I, when I read it, I didn't pause there to let the gruesome and the goriness uh, settle in too much. But uh, now we're going to come back to it. And uh, here it is in uh, blazing black and white and red. Uh, Adonibazek, uh, Adonai means Lord, and Bezek is the name of the city that he was Lord over. Uh, the 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. So he acknowledges that, uh, well, the tables have turned now. And here he says, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. You see what Adonis Bezek is saying? He says, I deserve what I'm getting. Now, why would they cut off the, the, the thumbs and the big toes of, of anyone? Well, if you cut off someone's big toe, uh, especially a warrior, he's not going to be very mobile. Any of you remember Dizzy Dean? He used to be uh, this great, uh, some of the old timers do. And you know what ended Dizzy Dean's uh, career as a pitcher? You know, he was a line drive and hit his big toe and broke it. And so that ended his career. He couldn't pitch from the mound anymore. So uh, if, if you don't have your big toes, you're, you're not mobile. And if you don't have your thumbs, you're not going to be able to shoot arrows or tall spears or wield a sword or anything like that. So they rendered him 
helpless. And he is humiliated. And Adonibus is not saying, this is not fair. I should not be treated like this. I've been a good king. I've been kind to my people. I've been easy to work with. And you treat me like this? He's saying, as I have done, so God has repaid me. I deserve what I am about to get. So he understands justice. He's on the receiving end of it. Well, and uh, Joshua too. I, I mentioned Rahab a moment ago. I mean Rahab. Um, that she, along with everyone else in the city of Jericho, recognized that they were ripe for judgment. That they deserved to come under God's hand of judgment. In Judges chapter 1, verses uh, 5 to 7, uh, well, we've uh, pretty much taken care of that, so let me move on. Uh, all right. The people take care of Adonibazek, they settle the land, but they don't finish the work of driving the inhabitants out as God has commanded. And so, as a result, the people of God assimilate themselves into Canaanite culture. And they begin to worship the gods of the Canaanites, which includes all kinds of despicable things that we've already referenced. And so in time, they become just like the Canaanites. Um, let me go back to Genesis just for a moment and put something else into your mind to dwell on for a moment. So I know it's hard for us in this culture uh, to picture God as he is presented here in Judges. And we, we think about, uh, it's just, it just doesn't sound like the character and the nature of God to, for him to, to, to order uh, the, uh, the, the, the deaths of, of all of these people, men, women, children alike. Now let's go back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden, we find Adam and we find Eve. And uh, we note that God has given them dominion over the garden and dominion over the earth. And then one day this serpent shows up and he entices Eve and says, uh, Has God indeed said uh, that you shall not eat of the tree or, or the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil? And uh, he sows that doubt uh, in her mind. And um, now we wonder what might have happened if Adam had driven the serpent out. Let's make the connection here. If, if, if you keep influences around you that tell you to disobey the word of God, it's not going to be long before you start believing what those voices say and forget all about what God said. Later on, when God comes into the garden after Adam and Eve have sinned and they've covered themselves with fig leaves and he says, what is this you have done? Which is exactly what the angel of the Lord, who again is a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ, is asking the people of Israel. You know, what is this that you've done? You've, you've not obeyed my command. So I, what I'm trying to do here is, 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 is take the Bible 
from beginning to end and all the way through and in between and see that it is one unit, how God works with his people. And in the book of Judges in particular, because it is such a, a, a strange book and because it's a time of chaos and we're in a time of chaos and we, we can relate to it, what we see here is our big, big need. We see our big, big sin. And we see the big, really big, massive grace of God extended to his people. Let's not miss that. But something calls the people of Israel to miss it. Something called half-hearted discipleship. They were half-hearted people. I mean, does anyone ever do anything halfway intentionally? Some years ago, um, there was someone I was training to mow grass, and uh, the, the guy I was training uh, got tired and decided that he didn't really want to do anymore. He said, I've, I've done half the yard. Uh, I'll, I'll just settle for half the pay. Uh, no, the world doesn't work that way. You know, God doesn't work that way. I mean, would you take your car to a car wash and the guy does uh, the, the, the right side, but he doesn't do the left side and he still wants half the, the, the money for that? Uh, that's not how the, the world works. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, we have several athletes here. Let's suppose that uh, you're, uh, I'll, I'll take basketball. Um, because we're going to talk about basketball again in a minute. Um, five guys, you're out there on the court just before tip-off, and the coach says, I want you guys to get out there and give 50%. Give it half of what you got. No coach in history other than Monk uh, on one episode uh, would ever say, um, you know, give it your, give it, give, give it half, just be half-hearted about it. Uh, but is there anything really that works uh, where you intentionally just do half? Um, well, there's a half marathon. Uh, some of you are uh, on the cross-country team. Some of you are, are runners. You've done the, uh, the, the half marathon. Some of you, I guess, have done the full marathon. And uh, if you're driving around town, uh, you might see a sticker like this. Yeah, any of you ever seen this sticker? 13.1? Uh, that's the number of miles in half a marathon. And uh, they're, they're proud of it. And so if uh, you have one of those stickers on your car, you got my respect. Um, one of my sons you know, goes all over the country. Uh, he's flown to the other side of the country so that he could run in a half marathon. He thinks it's fun. And some of you guys do too. Said, you mean you have to run? Uh, what, th 42 miles or something Sunday morning before you come to church? And, oh, no, we don't have to. We get to. I mean, I don't understand that. Um, I'd rather just drive around in the car. I'd, but anyway, uh, that, that's one way that, uh, you, you know, you, you, 
that, that half is, is, is good, that that is the objective. The other is like a, a, a half court shot in basketball. Not a full court, but a half court. You know, sometimes at uh, college games, uh, they'll have a contest and they'll bring a student out and uh, you know, you stand there in the half court circle and give you a chance to shoot. And if you make it, uh, you might get a prize. The prize might be as much as a semester's uh, tuition. Uh, that's you know, pretty impressive. So it, it, it's a big deal. But, but generally speaking, we don't set out to do things halfway. It could be that once we get into it, then you slack off a little bit. We're about to begin a new semester. It's chaos. You don't know whether you're going to be in class with other people or if you're going to be in class with a computer, right? I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just weird. But nonetheless, it's a, a new semester, and you want to give it your all. Until about halfway through, you start thinking, I see heads nodding up and down. Now, we're, we're having confession time here, aren't we? I was one of those students, man. I'm going to give it, all, I'm going to give it my all. I'm, I'm going to ace every class. And about halfway through the semester, I'm thinking, I'm going to pass every class, you know? <laughs> there were other things to do. Uh, by nature, you know, we, we, we tend this way. You know, judges is really relevant. We can identify with people who were half-hearted. So what's some of the evidence of half-heartedness? Well, chapter one is essentially a field report of how things are going with the individual tribes and the conquest of the land. And there's some good news and there's some bad news. First, the good news. The first few verses open up with the promise that they asked the Lord, uh, you know, who will go up for us? And the people, you know, they're seeking God's face. They're seeking his will. They're ready to put themselves into the heart of the mission. And uh, then verse 2, the Lord says, well, Judah will go up. And so Judah goes up, and, and that's good news. Uh, they are being obedient. And uh, then we read in verse 19 where it says, The Lord was with Judah. So far, so good. But one commentator says, If the chapter ends there, it would be almost completely all good news. But the chapter doesn't end there. Because later on in the chapter, seven times actually, starting at the end of verse 19, the text says, They did not drive out the inhabitants. In other words, they only did... A halfway job. That's the bad news. They were only half faithful in their obedience. And again, uh, I'll make reference to some of these verses here beginning at verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Ephraim did not drive out the inhabitants. And skip on down. Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. And in fact, a couple of times in verse 28 and also in verses 33 and 34, you see that the inhabitants of the land were subject to forced labor. It, it works sort of like this. Uh, the, the Israelites are going through and they're trying to clear out the, the land of the Canaanites there and they start thinking, ah, it's so tiresome to go to war against these people. You know, they fight back, uh, but we can conquer them. And, you know, we can make them forced laborers and that would be 
economically advantageous to us, and uh, we wouldn't have to work so hard either in this conquest or in uh, you know, life afterwards. So they, they thought they would do that. They were half-hearted. In verse 30, something here I want you to notice. There's a change in the language. I need to pay attention to the slides here. All right, verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron nor the inhabitants of Nahalal. And so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Okay, we just went over that. Now, I, I, I want to show you an, uh, a shift in the language. And uh, first of all, Asher didn't drive out the inhabitants of, uh, of Akko and or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or uh, uh, Akzib or of Helba or of Aphik or of Rahav. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Now, here's the, the shift that comes in the language in verse 30. It says, so the Canaanites lived among the Israelites. You skip down to verse 32 and see what it says. The Asherites, that's one of the tribes of Israel, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. So what we're looking at here is uh, the, the, the structure, the, the, the sentence structure, uh, the, the, the literary devices that are being used here. Uh, to, to begin with, you know, the, the, the Canaanites lived among the, the Israelites, but now it's more like, well, the, the Israelites are living among the Canaanites. They are the ones who have the greater influence. And we read that Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, I don't doubt that chariots of iron were really hard to contend with. Don't doubt that at all. I mean, it would be like the, the Sherman tanks of something that's more modern. Uh, you just don't really have much defense against them. And so, um, if you've got to go up against that, it's, it's wearisome, it's dangerous. But do you remember reading anywhere in the Old Testament where God said, you will possess the land of the Canaanites except in those places where they have iron chariots. You shall not prevail there. I will not give you success there. I mean, after all, they're iron chariots. No, you don't see God saying that anywhere. All right. So where are you? this morning is the story familiar to you does any of this hit home does anything you've heard this morning prompt you to ask yourself questions like these one why am I always so up and down spiritually number two why are there some sins that no matter how hard I try I just can't seem to be free of those sins. And question three, why do I struggle so much spiritually? Everyone else seems to have it all together, but I feel like I'm dragging. All right, look to the person to your right.
you're going to be staring at the back of that person's head. I realized that just now. Now turn, that, that person does not have it all together. Now look the other way. <laughs> that person doesn't have it all together either. Now look up here. This person sure ain't got it all together. And that's bad news. We don't have it all together. And that would be uh, a place, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, so what's the lesson for us here? And it might seem that, that the lesson is this. You know that you don't have it all together. Your sins have been exposed this morning, and you are aware that you fall far short, that you are half-hearted, perhaps, in discipleship and faithfulness and obedience. And so the lesson for us must be something like this. Shape up. Do a better job. Become more wholehearted. I can see how you would come to that conclusion. But uh, if that's all that you're getting this morning, um, that would be sad. See, the book of Judges is about more than the half-heartedness of God's people. It's also about the wholeheartedness of God. Now let me tell you about the wholeheartedness of God, which is, it's all here. It's all here. There's a wholehearted God who shows up. We see this in chapter 2. God comes to his people in their failure, in their half-heartedness, and he's recounting his promise to his people. He says in verse 1, let's look at it again. I brought you up. This is God speaking. I brought you up from Egypt and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, look at this. I will never break my covenant with you. That is the, those are the words of a wholehearted God. I'll never break my covenant with you, he says. So that's what he says in verse 1. Then in verse 3, you know, right after he says, I will never break my covenant with you, uh, he says this, So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. Uh-oh. Now we went from euphoria to disappointment real fast, didn't we? So what is God saying here? Saying, look, I'm not going to break my covenant with you. But I'm not going to pretend that disobedience gets the same reward as obedience. You're still going to have to bear the consequences of disobedience. But I'll still be with you. I won't forsake you, even though you're experiencing some consequences of uh, disobedience. Now, here's where it gets a, a little technical, and I, I, I hope that I can communicate this to you in, in the way that I, I imagined that, that I would. Um, let's get the idea here. The people are going to have to live with the consequences of their half-hearted obedience. So does this mean that God will just get tired of putting up with these people and their half-heartedness, their disobedience, 
and, and stop loving them? Will he give up on his people? Will he give up on you? Have you ever been afraid that God would just get tired of you and say, I've had it. You know, I've, I've put up with you. I've forgiven you time after time after time after time. But now, that's it. <laughs> I'm done. You know, if, uh, you know what God's about to do here is he's about to execute justice. He is going to summon his wrath and pour it out. He is going to punish sin where he finds it. Now that's scary to us, and it really should be. We have to take sin seriously. But if he does that, will he not be breaking his covenant? Will he not be saying, I'm done with you? Do you see the tension here? I, I hope you see the tension. And, and, and the tension is, is sort of like this. Uh, you know, if, if God is going to be a, a God of love and mercy, then he cannot be a, a God of justice. And if he's going to be a God of justice, then he can't be a God of love and mercy. That is, he, he, he can't be both. Or so it seems. At least it does in the book of Judges. But the book of Judges is just the shadow. It is the foreshadowing of what is to come. Now I want to bring you the really good news that the people of Israel, the people of God, and the days of the judges could only look forward to but would never experience in this lifetime. But we are on the other side of that. Remember I said that God will punish sin where it is found? Where did he punish sin? Where did he find? Well, it was where he found sin. And you know where he found sin? He found it where he put it. He took the sins of all the people on this side, here in the middle, <laughs> here on this side and especially up here and put all those sins on Christ. And then he brought the hammer of justice down on his son hard and punished sin in the flesh. And what motivated him to exercise such extreme justice? Well, it was extreme love. In the cross of Christ, the seemingly impossible becomes reality. So I want us to think about what God did for us in Christ. Christ became one of us. He took our sins upon himself and God poured out the fullness of his wrath on his son and Jesus drank of the cup down to the bitter dregs and so through the cross the justice of God is satisfied and the love of God is clearly demonstrated so this is why the book of Judges 
is one of the most oddly hopeful books in the Bible. In addition to giving us a big view of our desperate need and a big view of our sin, it's also a book that gives us a huge, monstrously large view of the grace of God. So there is good news and bad news in the book of Judges. Bad news is that God's people in the book of Judges demonstrated half-hearted obedience, half-hearted faithfulness, half-hearted discipleship. And that defines the people of God in the book of Judges. But it also defines us. And that's the bad news. But there's good news that even though we are often half-hearted toward God, he is wholehearted toward us. So in a nutshell, Judges is about the grace of God offering his grace to people who do not deserve it, who do not seek it, and who do not appreciate it when they get it. But thankfully, God doesn't wait for us to get our act together before he will help us. God lavishes his grace on people who do not deserve it. That's why it's called grace. I love that verse from Romans. That while we were yet sinners, long before we had it all together, which we never will. But we don't have to because Jesus got it all together for us on our behalf. And so this is a good place to shut up and just revel in the marvelous, wonderful grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Come to him. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we, we acknowledge that we don't have it all together. Uh, we acknowledge what we would sure like to. Uh, we would like to excel in everything that we do. We would like to do everything right. We would like it to not have struggles with sin, with temptation, with new temptations and old temptations alike. We realize that we are, we are weak. You didn't bring grace to us as a reward for faithfulness. You brought grace to us as a gift as a result of the faithfulness of your son whom we are here to worship today. We do worship you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for who you are, what you've done for us, cleanses, cleansing us of sin, renewing our spirits, causing us to be born again to a living hope. Not so much that in the future we might live in a perfect world in a perfect place but that we might have fellowship with you with God 
draw us to yourself. Give us the desire to go into the, the world around us where people don't know you, worship something else, perhaps success or sex or all of the things that seem to be such a trap and show them another way. We rejoice that you've chosen us to be not instruments of justice as the people of Israel were, but you have chosen us to be instruments of mercy. Thank you for this privilege. Through Christ we pray. Amen.